I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. And we'll get to a lot of these stories coming up in just a little bit. But first, we're going to do a little bit of time travel tonight in the Court TV time machine as we go back to probably the first huge, I mean huge, trial here on Court TV. It happened before O.J. Simpson, and it was the Menendez brothers' trial. If you don't remember it, maybe you're young or it's just been a while, take a look. Beverly Hills Police Dispatcher Christina Nye received a 911 call at the police station. On the line was Lyle Menendez, who sounded hysterical, reporting that, quote, someone shot my mom and my dad. Sergeant Edmonds asked Lyle Menendez if he had any idea as to who would have done this crime. Lyle Menendez opined that his father would probably be the reason for the murders. You didn't have a guilty conscience at that point about having bought these guns and about having bought uh, the more powerful ammunition knowing that you intended to use it on your parents and riding with them to this fishing trip. You had no guilty conscience about that? Guilty conscience? Yes. I thought they were going to kill us on the fishing trip. I wasn't guilty about getting two shotguns, no. You knew you wanted to kill your parents, isn't that right? I wanted to shoot at them, yes. You wanted to what? I wanted to shoot at them. But Mr. Menendez, you had to reload the shotgun in order to put that round into your mother's cheek, didn't you? Right. And you had to go someplace to get ammunition so that you could reload the shotgun to put that round into her cheek. Well, I actually didn't have to, but I did. And the prosecution has suggested to you that it was done for money. It was done to commit the perfect crime. And what we will prove to you is it was done out of fear. An event began which set all of this in motion. Eric Menendez told his brother Lyle Menendez that he couldn't stand it any longer. His father had been molesting him for 12 years. It had gotten more violent and he couldn't take it. Although shocked to hear that this had been going on for the 12 years, he believed Eric. Between the ages of six and eight, did your father have sexual contact with you? Yes. We would be in the bathroom and uh, um, it would, he would put me on my knees and he would guide me all my movements and I would um, uh, have oral sex with him. He'd have a tube of Vaseline and he just played with me. Did he try to anally penetrate you with something else? He did. And what was it? It, he raped me. What did you expect? I was gonna go to college. How significant a notion was this? It was the most important thing in my life. It was everything in my life. It was all I thought about. Why was it all you thought about? Why was it all I thought about? Yeah. Because it would end the sex, and that's all I thought about. How did you feel at 18 about the fact that your father was having sex with you? I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. 
The defense is going to tell you that what happened is these defendants were in a constant and heightened state of fear between the 15th of August and the 20th of August. But the evidence in this case, not the defendant's words, but the physical, circumstantial evidence in this case, disproves the defense theory. The court finds that the jury is hopelessly deadlocked and uh, declares a mistrial. I find that the jury is hopelessly deadlocked and uh, the court declares a mistrial. All right, at the end there, you, you heard the judge say it twice. That's because in that first trial where there were cameras, there were two juries, one for each defendant, and they both ended up uh, being hung juries. Let's bring in our guests because we have two really good guests tonight, special guests. First, one of the jurors from uh, the Mendez Brothers' first trial, Hazel Thornton, is with us. Hazel is also the author of the book, Hung Jury, The Diary of a Menendez Juror. And also joining us by phone tonight, journalist Robert Rand. Robert is the author of The Menendez Brothers, The Shocking Untold Story of the Menendez Family and the Killings That Stunned the Nation. And he has been covering this story longer and in more depth than anyone. Great to have you both here. Um, Hazel, let me go to you first. Um, your jury did not come to a unanimous agreement, but what was your personal verdict during that first trial? Oh, my personal verdict was um, that, first of all, I was on the Eric Menendez jury, and my personal verdict was that he was guilty of involuntary, no, voluntary manslaughter. Not guilty, and, and so the jury was hung, just if you can kind of understand, was it, was it split along male and female? Um, how, how did this break down? Because I've heard a lot of stories. It was a battle of the sexes. It was, it was, <clears throat> on our jury, it was split half and half, six women and six men. All of the women wanted to vote for manslaughter, and all of the men wanted to work, vote for murder. On the Lyle Menendez jury, it was slightly different, but roughly half and half, roughly men against women. Unbelievable. Robert Rand, let me ask you, because you know this story uh, and these trials better than anyone. What is, what is the biggest misperception that people have these days about this case? The biggest misperception that people have is that Eric and Lyle Menendez were a pair of greedy rich kids who killed their parents because they were in a hurry to inherit their money. And that is absolutely not true. Uh, this was a case of intergenerational sex abuse, mental illness. There were so many different uh, factors. It's hard for me to even keep it all straight. But one of the most important factoids you need to know is that in the summer of 92, a year before the brothers went on trial, uh, the LA County DA's office went to a grand jury and asked them to return an indictment of murder for financial gain. The grand jury did not return that indictment. And yet, the prosecutors prosecuting the Menendez case, Pam Bazanich, Lister Kuriyama, they kept beating uh, that into the uh, trial, put, you know, it, pulling that into the trial. And I think they just wanted the general public to hate the brothers, which actually is what ended up happening. Have, have you been in contact with, with them through the years? I have stayed in contact with Lyle Menendez. Uh, actually, uh, I had been visiting uh, Lyle Menendez uh, uh, about every six to eight weeks, and I had an opportunity to visit with him the last week in February, just before COVID shut down all the visiting in California prisons. 
Uh, oh yeah, we have a picture right there. And um, where are things for them right now? Is you know we always hear that everyone's got you know a new issue, a new appeal coming. I mean, it's been many many years. Is there any sort of legal recourse that they are pursuing still at this point? I remain hopeful that uh, Eric and Lyle Menendez are going to file for a new appeal in in California, which I think will be a really big deal. Uh, as I said, this their their conviction was a miscarriage of justice. The resolution of this case should have been uh, manslaughter, not murder. They still would have served uh, 22 years uh, on a manslaughter charge. And... Um, on uh, December 27th, Eric Menendez actually uh, uh, made a comment during an online chat uh, on his uh, YouTube channel, Justice Watchdog, and he said uh, that the brothers are planning to file a new appeal in 2021. All right. So, Hazel, you, and you agree with what uh, Robert is saying, uh, manslaughter. Why did you believe this was manslaughter? I mean, it seemed like they planned this a little bit. They covered it up. They... Um, acted with some level of malice. How did you come to a conclusion that you believed it was manslaughter? Well, it actually, none of that, what you just said, was actually proven by the prosecution. And it was their burden of defense. What the, the biggest um, debate, well, it wasn't the number one topic of discussion, but the uh, men all kept saying that the defense had not proven sexual abuse. And the women kept saying, it's not up to the defense to prove anything. It's up to the prosecution to prove the elements of murder. And they have not done that. They, they underestimated the jury, I believe, and were unprepared for the defense. Right. And, and what did you think of, their, uh, of, of what they testified to about the alleged sex abuse? Did you believe it? Did the um, other women who were voting for manslaughter also believe it. We believed them, but it wasn't just about the sexual abuse. I mean, there are there are other forms of abuse testified to, such as um, you know physical that wasn't sexual, uh, mental, emotional, um, all sorts of neglect, and it was not just testified to by the brothers. It was also by a parade of teachers and coaches and neighbors and friends and relatives. So it wasn't just them saying it, and it wasn't just about sex. Robert Rand, let me ask you about, um, you mentioned that they're looking for another appeal. A lot of times when it's been this many years, you need oh, maybe something like some new evidence, something that has been uncovered recently that wasn't available uh, at the time of the trial. Has anything like that come up uh, for the Menendez brothers? Yes, uh, the threshold for reopening an appeal in California is that you have to have uh, some new evidence. And um, I uncovered a letter shortly before the deadline for my 2018 book, The Menendez Murders, which was a letter that Eric Menendez wrote to his cousin Andy Cano in which he was complaining about the molestation. And in, in this letter, uh, he is also talking about how spaced out his mother was and how concerned he was about her. And that letter was from December of 1988. 
And I think that will be a potential important new piece of evidence. But I have also been going back through hundreds of audio tape interviews that I did going back to 1989 when I interviewed the brothers for the Miami Herald, uh, two months after uh, the killings of Jose and Kitty, five months before they were arrested. They weren't suspects publicly. I had no reason to be suspicious of them. And in those tapes that I'm going through, I am finding uh, information about people that friends of Lyle Menendez that knew about the molestation four to five months before the murders. And I think that could potentially be an explosive piece of evidence. Hazel, they, they, they killed mom and dad, right? Jose yes. and Kitty. Do, like with the sex abuse and all of that and, and, and the allegations of, uh, you know, we feared for our lives or we thought they were going to kill us or hurt us. Like I understand it. For the father, um, why do you do you think the same was true of why they killed their mom they, also? They were equally afraid of her. They their parents were a team, and they and they found out that she knew what had been going on. So that scared them even more than they had been. And one final question uh, for Robert Rand: um, Why? I mean, they were eight. Were they eighteen and twenty years old? Eighteen and twenty-one at the time. Why didn't they just kind of like walk away or go to police or or reach out to someone? They were they were grown. They were adults. That's Vinny. That is the number one question people ask me. They were eighteen and twenty-one. Why didn't they leave home? The answer is the therapy experts uh, who evaluated them told me that their emotional maturity was somewhere around eight to ten years old. Jose and Kitty Menendez had made the brothers very dependent on them. They could not imagine walking out the front door of that house. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm so excited and honored to be joined by living legend, Professor Anne Burgess. Professor Anne Burgess is a woman I have greatly admired throughout my entire career. Her work is seminal on rape and trauma and behavioural profiling, and she's a pioneer and a shero who has been quietly getting on with the work in the background. And when I say getting on with the work, I'm talking about identifying killers and serial killers helping the FBI and inadvertently later on New Scotland Yard create their behavioural profiling methodologies, as well as working with many, many victims. Now, in this interview, you'll hear much more about Professor Ann Burgess's work, and I think you're going to be totally enthralled by our conversation. I certainly was, and I hope that you will be too, as Professor Burgess shares key insights about Eric and Lyle and the important timeline. Also, in the clip that you just heard at the top of the episode, I just want to highlight a couple of things. Firstly, yes, that was Hazel Thornton, who I interviewed in part one and two that you heard being interviewed, along with Rob Rand, whose book I referenced in the previous episodes. Now, when Rob talked about the new evidence that he found, that's the new evidence that's contained in the habeas petition filed in May 2023. And you are going to hear more about that in future episodes. Now, a couple of the other points, well, two top questions that tend to be asked about this case are, number one, what about Kitty? Everyone always tends to focus on the female with cases, as I've talked about many times before, and people want to know what her role was in this. 
But that's something I've been looking at across many months. Professor Ann Burgess and I discuss it in this two-part interview. And the second question that I wanted to highlight, well, it's what the interviewer asked Rob right at the end of the clip, which was, why didn't the boys just walk away? Or why didn't they go to the police? I find this question just maddening and frustrating. It's victim blaming. And I hear it all the time with female victims of domestic violence, the why did she stay? Why didn't she leave? The question I would like people to substitute it with is, why does he do what he does? And why doesn't he stop? And how do we make him stop? So I should say the multiple questions I would like people to focus on are the problem, his behaviour or the abuser's behaviour, and not what the victim did or didn't do. And this is a cultural shift and change, but we have to walk that line. It tells me we still have a long way to go to understand domestic abusers and coercive controllers and how they victimise women and children. You can't just walk away. You can't just leave. And where do you go? And what happens when you have nothing or no one else? Also, we know that when you walk away and when you leave, it increases the risk. It doesn't decrease. So in 76% of the cases, that's where I've seen the homicides happen, the femicides or the children being killed. So coercive control significantly correlates with femicide, familicide and suicide. So we really need to understand the red flag related behaviour. And also regarding the police, well, if no one in the family or their friends network was going to intervene or try and protect them, including their own mother, well, in their heads, why would the police be any different? So we have to think about that. We have to have a common sense approach in terms of the questions and make sure that we're asking intelligent questions, but focusing on the abuser's behaviour. So we get into all of this in these episodes, but I just wanted to spotlight that we still have a long way to go to educate people and professionals and society about coercive controllers and domestic abusers and sexual victimisation and trauma. Now, we do get into a lot of detail about the abuse in this episode, so as always, listener discretion is advised. Okay, so with all that having been said, let's dive into this insightful and illuminating interview with the incredible Professor Anne Burgess. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, somebody who has shaped and been a part of my career, although she may not have known that she's been part of my career in the early days at New Scotland Yard. So please introduce yourself. Yes, I'm happy to be here and be on your your program. This is a real treat for me, too. I'm Ann Burgess. And I am at Boston College, which is in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. It's a Jesuit institution. And I've been, I had started my career there. Then I went to University of Pennsylvania for 17 years. I think that's when we met when uh, we were over at New Scotland Yard. And then I uh, have come back to Boston College. And the work that I'm, my career is really based on, started at Boston College. And it started because of a sociologist named Linda Lytle Holmstrom, who was a brand new assistant professor as I was, and she was looking for a new research topic. And so we teamed up and that's how I got into this whole area studying rape victims. And from there is when I went 
to, uh, I can tell you a little later if you need the um, behavioral science unit down at Quantico, Virginia. And of course, that's where I met Bob Ressler, John Douglas, Ken Lanning, Roy Hazelwood, the, uh, the profilers as they called themselves back then. So my career has pretty much been with crime victims, but also to understand the offender. Because I think unless we understand the offender, we're not going to make much headway in preventing victimization. So other things that I've done, I've always been an academic. I've uh, been at three different institutions, Boston College, of course, University of Pennsylvania. And I was uh, for about three years over at Boston University. So I love teaching. And so much of my time is spent teaching as well as doing research. Well, I am very excited to have you on Crime Analyst and speak to you. I've read many of your works from your books to articles, and I've heard you speak many times. And I used to run the program at New Scotland Yard many moons ago and bring in lots of speakers from all across the world to the Fifth Law Commissioner's briefing room to talk to New Scotland Yard, primarily detectives, but there were officers from other departments. And your work has been seminal in shaping my work of setting up the behavioural analysis unit, as it was called at New Scotland Yard, which really mirrored the FBI's unit. It was a smaller unit, but it was very much a satellite, as it as it were. And a lot of my work has been informed, and I spent time at the FBI too in Quantico, and your work has just been incredible around victims and trauma and abuse, but also understanding patterns, patterns for victims and patterns of offenders. And you're one of the few, actually, Anne, who I've heard talk about prevention, that lens around ensuring that we identify those patterns and try and prevent and not just say, throw our hands up and say, well, there's nothing we can do about violence and abuse. And that took me to set up the Homicide Prevention Unit, which was a very brave new world unit in the heart of New Scotland Yard. I'm not sure they were ready for it at the time, to be fair, but we did a lot of work trying to create risk tools to identify high-risk behaviours, particularly with domestic violence and stalking cases, and the offenders specifically. And we reduced domestic violence murders by 58% year on year by disrupting the pattern and you are one of the few who talks about patterns and talks my language. You were awarded as well. You've received so many accolades and awards and quite rightly too. You are, you've been named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing and you've written so many books, which I'll put some of them in the show notes so that my listeners can devour them because I know that they will. And you also appeared in well, your character is loosely who you are and what you've done. Wendy Carr was the character in Mindhunter, which I know a lot of my listeners and viewers probably have watched and know a little bit about that show. Was was that something you were consulted about or did that just happen? And, and how did you feel about that? No, evidently producers like to put their own signature, if you will, on it. But I will say they had all of our material so that the discussion on the cases is very accurate because we had interviews and tape recordings and so forth. So I was really pleased with that. And Dr. Wendy Carr does, I think, does a fantastic job. And I use it as teaching because I can say, as, as I show a segment, I can say, now, this is where we had to work so hard to get them to use methodology because they didn't even understand 
research. And why should they? They were investigators. They had to go catch the bad guy, so to speak. And then they they did a great job on that where they had, uh, I guess it was uh, a Brutus that was snoring while he was reading the little thing you're supposed to read all the time. And <laughs> so, I mean, uh, and those are the little things that I think that were really very good. So I hope your uh, your readership will will watch because they le- they can learn a lot through the actors that use our material. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, the actual cases themselves were, were yes. very well done. And it's just about whether the people, the, the true characterization, you know, the blouses of Wendy and all her Lydia, little idiosyncrasies and the cat and all of that coming into play, you know, were questionable for me. But I thought the cases were done very well in terms of the accuracy yeah. and no doubt the culture of you trying to <laughs> change this culture. They were trying that and it didn't work, did it? It didn't work. So uh, the people that watched it, they'll love the show. And I think they were, they got a lot out of it. But trying, I mean, trying to make one of the characters have a serial killer for a 10-year-old for his child is way, way too much. I don't know where they came up with that. But but anyway, they did not, you're absolutely right. They did not get the uh, personality styles of the three of us, wrestler Douglas and myself, right. Yes, and now um, meeting you as well. I've I met the others, and I work with the second generation and third generation of profilers at, at Quantico, and the work and the analysis is still holds up. And a lot of the work that I was doing at New Scotland Yard on homicide prevention, it was really reverse engineering, so using the same sort of methodology, but with domestic violence, we know who the offenders are. We can profile them backwards and start to understand, were there intervention opportunities? What does their behavior tell us? What do the risk factors look like? Can we change the pattern? If we, I call it, take a domino out, you know, it's like a domino uh, set going down. And if we identify that pattern of escalating risk, can we do something differently to change that pattern and work with the victims to keep them safer and the children, but also wrap around a multi-agency response to the perpetrator. Yeah. And I think the other thing that the agents really picked up on, and uh, Greg Cooper, who he would have been a fourth generation profiler, runs a cold case foundation out in Utah. He's wonderful if you ever want to talk with him. I know he'd love to come on your program. But anyway, the uh, victimology is the point I'm trying to make, is that you start with victimology. And of course, they had so many biases about rape victims that you had to spend a lot of time in any of our training trying to get rid of those biases, you know, that it wasn't the victim's fault. They would wanted, and it was so easy for them to say, oh, what was she doing out at, you know, seven o'clock at night or 
Why was she wearing that dress? Or uh, why did she even smile at that man? I mean, the, all of those things, as if that's the reason they they always thought that rape was sex, sexually motivated. And that's one thing that we said that it's for many other purposes or motives, if you will. So I think we tried to get that point across. Yes, although we still see a lot of victim blaming, unfortunately, of... Yeah. You know, she did X, Y or Z, exactly as you described. And with domestic violence, the question is always, why did she stay rather than why does he do what he does? And so flipping those questions on their head, I spend a lot of time teaching, as I did this morning, teaching a class with professionals all across the world on stalking and stalkers and the mindset and the psychopathology. Um, They can be very dangerous, a predatory stalkers outside the home, some of the serial killers that you've worked on and the cases where you're identifying the patterns and their psychopathy. So I spend a lot of time in those cases as well trying to teach, as I know you do, what those signs are to look out for, all the time thinking about the victim blame, the unconscious bias that creeps in, which is a real challenge because it's, it's everywhere. In it terms does. of the victim blame and, and misogyny can be present as well. And that's not just perpetrators, it's within our professionals and our institutions. And, and that's hard to unravel at times, but we have to try and deal with it head on. And I do try and tackle it head on now of the way that women are reported, you know, treated when they report and how men can be given a pass when they are violent and abusive and the empathy can creep in. And I think that that can be a real challenge, just the attitude on its own about what we think we understand about abuse and how victims behave and how how they behave and how they're enabled to behave in that way at times. And I think that probably leads us on to the case that I, well, one of the cases that I really wanted to talk to you about, because I was listening to you on a podcast, it was a YouTube channel, actually, um, with John Conti, both talking about your role in the Menendez case, assessing Lyle and Eric. And every time it threw to you, unfortunately, the Wi-Fi cut out, but there were real questions I really wanted to hear from you. And I just thought, I've got to, I've got to reach out to Dr. Ann Burgess and see whether she'll talk to me, because there were some critical points that I really wanted to hear from you. And I think, you know, the work that you did with assessing Eric, and I know you testified and spoke to both juries. Can you explain how you got involved in the case and what yes. you found? Well, I got involved in the case with Dr. John Conti. That's why he was on the program with me, because I said, if you want me to talk about the Menendez case, you really have to have John. Now, John was at the University of Chicago at the t- uh, when I first met him. He's now out at University of Washington. And he is editor of a very prestigious journal, the Journal of Interpersonal Violence. And he called me. This is the way it works in some of these, I guess, these high-profile cases. He called me out of the blue. I mean, I would see him at conferences and so forth. And he says, hey, have you heard about the Menendez case? I hadn't. You know, I, I said, John, I'm over here on the East Coast. News doesn't get through to us too much from the West Coast. So he laughed. And he said, well, pick up a copy of People magazine. And he says, it's got a purple cover. I said, oh, okay. I, you know, I, I don't even have time to read this. But I went down and got a copy of People magazine. And sure enough, they're on the cover. This had happened. Uh, these two brothers, these wealthy brothers that had shotgunned their parents, et cetera. So in the meantime, why he called me is he said, Do you, would you want to get involved? He says, I'm going to be involved with uh, Lyle Menendez. And how would you like to be 
help with uh, Eric. And so that was it. I said, well, sure, as long as you're involved, I guess it's, it's something I can do. <laughs> and uh, so he got that back to um, Leslie Abramson. So it's kind of the way I guess that they, they check you out to see if you're interested rather than the lawyer calling who I didn't know or anything. Anyway, so that put me in touch with Leslie. And that was really a good experience. She's an incredible attorney and personality herself. And as you could, if you remember, the case was she was very, very attentive, I guess is the word to her, both. Well, certainly to Eric, because that was her primary responsibility. And then Jill, the other attorney, was responsible more for the team for Lyle. So I went out and they test you, you know, that it's like the FBI. Everything's a test. So I go out there. I didn't know this at the time. And we met. I went and met the brothers in jail. They were, of course, in jail. And um, we talked about that after that visit, because I went out several times, three separate times just to testify and uh, to talk about the theory. What did I think happened? How could this be? And I I really went through the whole list. I tried to be very unbiased. You know, was this a criminal enterprise? Was this a personal cause? Was this a sexual or was it a group? And just struck out on everything. I, nothing seemed to fit. And I, I said, it's got to be the family. Something's going on in the family that is has created the situation because they had everything. You know, they were athletes, they were tennis pros, and, and they were doing well in school. They were going to go to college, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, what is wrong? And that's when I decided that we had to start looking at any of the major stressors. And, of course, trauma was was a major one. And it didn't have to be, I mean, it was various types. Certainly psychological trauma was heavy. Jose Menendez was a very controlling person, not only to his family, but his extended family. And I was shocked at how they put pressure on the teachers if they didn't like the grade that one of the brothers got or Eric certainly got. Uh, they were right in there in the, in, to see the professor or the teacher. And I thought, wow, uh, I'd never had a parent come to protest the grade I gave to any of my students. So I thought that's, and they changed the grade. You know, it wasn't that they just would listen to them. So that's a lot of pressure. And so I began to see it through, I tried to see it through what Eric was telling me. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. 
And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Firstly, I just want to say I'm so glad you mentioned the word controlling because it's the control that gets missed a lot when we're thinking about abuse and particularly with children and, and with women. A lot of people will think about the physical things first of all. And physical abuse can happen as well as, but it's the control and coercive control is something that I felt so strongly about in England and Wales that I campaigned to change the law and to create a new offence of coercive control with a lot of other campaigners, actually, women's aid and uh, grassroots female-led organisations. And I was running a charity at the time, Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service, which I founded to help victims because there was no help for them, traumatised victims being stalked. And so I changed the law on stalking as well before to create that criminal offence and then set up the the advocacy service. I knew you would appreciate that of trying to ensure victims have as much support at the worst time in their lives. And coercive control, when I first looked at Lyle and Eric and what was going on in the family dynamics, I I didn't assess either of the boys, but I did hear them give testimony. I watched on court TV as I watched your testimony. And what really struck me was their reluctance to talk about what had happened to them. So I just want to ask you about that, of how your discussions, you know, came about with Eric and what he shared with you. But they seem reluctant to me to actually want to even talk about the abuse, which quite often I see when there's coercive control and this image of the perfect family. You know, and when we go back in time... Yes, yeah. they didn't want to. On one hand, they didn't want to betray the the reputation of the family. And I think that played a big, big part because they were reluctant to talk about it. But it was um, they did eventually. And that did come out a little bit in the court testimony. But the other thing I want to say is this was male on male. This was male father son incest with Eric. And that was a very taboo topic. So even just getting that out was I thought was amazing that we could get out that much but that, that's where and if you notice on the juries they they fell into two camps the men on one side and the women on the other men find it very hard I don't see how they they don't understand how boys adolescent even adult men can be raped so there's a lot of education that has to go around there but you understand it when you see the controlling factor they they have to do what they are told to do. Absolutely. And the perfect image of of the family and the Latin family as well. In a Latin family, when there's machismo and the male is seen as the dominant, the patriarch, and it seemed that there were lots of rules and regulations. And you just started to talk about that with the teachers, certain scores that they had to achieve and at sports that they had to achieve a certain, this pressure that was placed on the boys and the sexual side, which often with coercive control, we see sexual 
abuse. Yeah. And of course, as you said, it's a taboo, even more so back then when talking about boys and men of people not being able to understand that. And that can act as a real barrier to people getting into the mindset of what actually happened in the case of why and how could he kill? Why would that happen? And why he seemed like a pillar of the community, Jose Menendez. There's no way he could be doing these things, even though 51 witnesses gave evidence. I, I don't think anyone said that he was a good man and a good person and a nice person. I think from recall, everybody talked to this controlling and frightening and intimidating character. Absolutely. The family. I thought when his own family, the uncles and aunts, they couldn't even sit down to dinner or to do with or talk with him. And if he had taken one of the boys into another room, they had to just wait. I mean, that was another example that uh, John Conte gave, I think, with, with Lyle. It was incredible the amount of control that one person could have. But that happens. That's where the dysfunction in families happens. Yes. And I think, I mean, for me, when I talked about, I've got another podcast called Real Crime Profile with a former profiler from the FBI, Jim Clementi. And we talked about this case a lot. Um, And we spoke to a juror who was on in the first trial. and, And you're quite right. Six of the women all felt that there was abuse, but the men didn't. So we know that there's sex that plays in here. Sex yeah. and gender plays into how we understand what abuse is and what it looks like. And that both juries were hung as a consequence of hearing about all of the abuse. It wasn't what was in the media. The media were trying to have everyone believe this was about money. And right. I think I've heard you say before that the boys were given money by their they father. They it. didn't need for anything. They didn't. I think the other thing that really sold me on on this of uh, Eric is when he said that at one of the last meetings that they had with the father, he had been accepted, I think, to both UCLA and UC Berkeley. And he wanted to go to the one where he would be in a dorm. That would have been UCLA. And the father wanted him to go to Berkeley. And then he said, you're going to stay home. I'll get you a little moped or something. You can scooter to work or to school. And he Eric realized he was never going to get away from the father and having to live at home. So that I thought was very important uh, when when I heard that from him. Absolutely. And you talked about the timeline and that's when you cut out on the last podcast. And the timeline for me is so important in cases. It's the thing that all my listeners know as a behavioral analyst, I'm always saying what was going on in the timeline a week before, weeks before, months before, what changed, what was different. And you were talking my language immediately by saying the timeline is so important leading up. And you asked Eric about the timeline. You've just mentioned one critical thing, which was that mm-hmm. he saw his out of going to college and then his yeah. father denied him. And I think he paid off the college to say, you know, that he didn't have to stay overnight, that he would stay at home. I think there was a donation that was made yes. to, yeah. to stop Eric and to ensure that he stayed at home. And he told other people it was because he needed supervision. And for Eric, that was an opportunity that he saw closing and him not being allowed that freedom. And I put it, coercive control is unfreedom when someone coercively controls and dominates and entraps you. And there's a power imbalance. And of course, here we see a power imbalance of Jose pulling all the strings. And for Eric, he saw an opportunity to leave home 
and that freedom and then the bid for freedom closing and then a number of other critical things that happened in that timeline. Could you yeah. just talk about that? Sure. Well, well, one of the other important things is they wanted to get the mother away. And Lyle was going to go back to Princeton. He had been, I think it was his junior year. Anyway, so they said, come on, we'll, the three of us will go back to the East Coast. And the mother wouldn't do it. So that became very clear. And then the other important thing is she knew about the, the abuse and did nothing about it. So when people say, well, why did I can understand maybe the father, but why did they kill the mother? Well, she wasn't protecting them. And that was something that was really hard for them to deal with. So I, I could understand why both were going to be or they thought that they, that she was so subservient to Jose that they saw both parents as kind of one. And that was another played important role. The last week was critical. The um, uh, the toupee issue, I think maybe you heard John talk about that. That was uh, so humiliating for him and for Eric to watch. And I think that last week is when he also found out that he didn't realize that Lyle had been abused earlier. And then the father went to Eric and they had they talked about that in that week. So it was another revolution for both brothers to realize that. And then, of course, the shark uh, going shark fishing. They were so worried now that if the incest ever came out, that would ruin Jose's career, which it would. You, you know, I mean, these that's, they were absolutely right. So they thought, well, maybe if he thought it was going to come out, that they would come after the brothers, and that they were in danger. Now, that's not a, people need to understand, that's not logical as we think about it, you know, that the parents would kill their sons. But in the context of all of this, and the frantic aspect to it, that's important of how they felt and they perceived it. Now, it could, it was a misperception, probably, but it was in their heads. So all of that cum culminates, and then they go on this shark fishing of all things to do in the middle of the night. It's dark, and they're huddled up in the front of the boats, and the parents are in the back with the um, boatman, and they're thinking, is something going to happen? And, of course, that's when they decide to get the guns. They had wanted to get handguns, but California, of course, has a rule. They have to wait, I think, 14 days. And they were so scared. Why didn't they wait the 14 days? You know, they could have. No, they had to get guns. And the only guns you could get fast are shotguns for hunting. They had never fired a gun, if I remember correctly. They had to take a lesson to fire, to fire a shotgun. So I think that gives you the, the panicky feelings that they had. So that's why I came in with this was a disorganized kind of a crime scene, not a planned, premeditated. And that was important because obviously first degree murder is uh, they were on the possibility of death penalty at the time that that case was going. So those are some of the things that um, they had to decide something had to be done. And it was that Sunday night. So that weekend, when you talk timeline, that was a critical timeline. And as I said, I thought I got this in on the podcast is that, yeah, they had an alibi, but it didn't work, you know, so it wasn't really very good alibi. <laughs> Alibis are supposed to work, right? So having that and right afterwards and trying, the police also missed every clue to have, they could have arrested them right then and there. They walk back, what, three hours later and they smell smoke. 
well, smoke dissipates pretty quickly. You know that in any kind of a crime scene. So three hours of smoke of my gun would have dissipated. And then, of course, the other factor was they could have just done a quick hand, check their hands for any gun residue. And they probably could have just, you had two young, really adolescents. You could have sat them down and say, we know this isn't what happened. Let's go over it again. And I think they would have confessed because they thought the police would be there when they got back from that movie they were supposed to have attended. So you see their thinking and how unclear their thinking is. Uh, That's what I worked with in terms of the data to determine what my opinions were going to be. Absolutely. I mean, they weren't criminally sophisticated. They hadn't thought these things through. They didn't know. They'd never done it before. And all these things point to emotionality, that this was in emotion. And I think that that part, the overkill, the way that it was described in the media, that it should have been clear to everybody this wasn't about money. It wasn't efficient as a kill, which it would be if it were about just money. This was about heavily emotionally charged. And we know with victims, when you've been victimized, your abuser is much bigger than what you think they are, and bigger in every way. Right. What they've been doing to you and diminishing and devaluing you. And therefore, most of the times where you have a battered woman who kills, I don't like that term, but when you've got somebody who's been abused and they kill, they have to ensure they actually kill. And it's it can be thought through. But these were two boys who... They say they were fearful. The dynamic had changed. There'd been a confrontation. Eric could not deal with the thought of being made to stay at home when the abuse was continuing. And Lyle would go off and Lyle was upset that Eric was still being abused. He had been told never to tell Lyle and Eric had told him. And then Lyle confronted Jose and was going going to expose the abuse. The secret was going to come out. There's a lot of power in secrets. And that's the important point to make is that then when a secret comes out, because it's got all this power behind it, it can just really explode. So I've always been impressed with secrets and, and people who, you know, and, and how that all, all plays out. So I think that that was what was important in terms of looking at the last week. I think those were the key factors that I saw leading up to the uh, shooting of the parents, yeah. Yeah, and the shame and the humiliation that resides with the victims too. And you mentioned the, the sexual abuse of Eric that had been going on for years. Oh, and it had been going on for years, and if it ever came out, it would have destroyed Jose, and they knew it. So they chose to not have it come out. They thought they could. it wouldn't have to come out that way. That yeah, I think we're hoping that it would be seen as maybe a criminal enterprise that the mafia was after them. Uh, and of course, I, if you talk with Leslie Abramson, she would tell you that they tried to get any kind of information they could on any of the books or if, if uh, Jose was into any uh, like child pornography or anything that would give them some better understanding of his proclivities. And of course, it finally has come out, but uh, that's another story if you want to get into. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would love to talk to Leslie. I just think she was just such a tremendous advocate she who she really fought for she, them. Yes, yeah, she really did. She really cared about them and she wanted to. And she had all, I think she would say this, is that she had liked to have tried Eric alone 
And I think it might have been, she uh, might have been different, but having to try them together from a legal standpoint, from a prosecutor or from a defense, uh, uh, was a little bit hard. And, and it proved out that because if in, in any time you have a dual kind of a homicide or any kind of a crime, there's one that's more the leader, if you will, the one that's more organized in some way about it. And I think that Eric was certainly, he's the little brother. And he really played that role. Um, whatever Lyle wanted to do, he would do. Yeah, being compliant. Well, of course, both boys are taught to be compliant by sure. by Jose Menendez, ah. that they didn't have their agency. And it was very distressing to hear about all the types of abuse that were going on. And I think, you know, people talk about sexual abuse, but that not knowing each night whether it's going to happen. And the the level of sadistic behavior as well for Jose Menendez of, you know, these pins and running needles on his penis and things that we know, Anne, are sadistic behaviors and are much more likely for that sort of perpetrator to be doing things to other victims as well, not just those he can control within his home environment, but I would be looking to others outside of that. And of course, there he was involved in the music business and the pornography business. And therefore, Leslie was absolutely going down the right track of, you know, who else was being abused. But of course, victims talk about things at different times. Some aren't ready to talk about what's gone on. Especially boys. They're not going to, uh, we found in many of our studies that they wouldn't even admit it unless somebody had witnessed it. They had to have witnessed it. They would not admit that it was going on. Yeah, the shame and humiliation for them. I'm jumping in here to wrap this fascinating episode. There are so many important points to process. And I don't want you to miss that last one regarding Professor Ann Burgess's work and male rape victims. And it's something that I found too. Many do not report, and it's even less likely if a family member or someone known to them is the abuser. Also, this type of abuser, like Jose, the sadistic nature of his behaviour, well, he's much more likely to be abusing others outside the home. In fact, in my research getting away with it that I did when I was at New Scotland Yard, I found that one in eight of domestic sexual abusers were offending inside and outside the home. So they were sexually abusive to their partner or their ex-partner. Many of them were raping them post-separation, but they were also targeting women that they didn't know and raping other victims outside the home. So we have to make these links. It's so important when we're thinking about public protection. That's what a lot of my work has been about. And I really feel that Leslie Abramson fought for Eric and for Lyle and she did the best that she could and she was on the right track regarding Jose's sadistic and prolific abusive behaviour. But she was limited and restricted by the judge. You'll hear much more about that in the coming weeks. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work. 
and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.